the time and the expense it would take for somebody to vet the deal and make sure that you actually own the shares of the LP and what the operating agreement says. And hey, you're telling me that you're getting a 12% cash on cash. Hello, and thank you for joining us today on the Gentle Art of Crushing It show, where we focus on learning and sharing with our listeners all there is to know about how to create success in our lives. This show stands on the shoulders of giants. Our mission is to empower and inspire our listeners to create the life of their dreams whilst having a blast in the process. Let's celebrate life together. Welcome to the show. All right. Welcome to the Gentle Art of Crushing It podcast, Passive Investing Edition. Uh, my name is Randy and I am your host today. And I am extremely excited to have an expert in the SEC space, uh, Mauricio Rold, with us today. So Mauricio, welcome to the show. No, thanks for having me, Randy. I really, uh, really appreciate and looking forward to this. Outstanding. Outstanding. So why don't we go ahead and just jump right into it? Can you tell us a little bit about your background, what kind of value you bring to the space and uh, your journey to where we are today? Yeah, uh, I'm a syndication attorney by trade, so I generally keep people out of jail. I'm I'm, I'm the guy that uh, look. If you're a passive investor and you've been investing in syndications, you've probably read the dreaded PPM, right? The private placement memorandum and all those documents, subscription agreements, operating agreements. Like, well, I'm the guy who drafts those documents on behalf of my clients that are usually sponsors. Uh, and I've been doing that for a long time. Uh, I've been practicing for I think 20 now. What is it? 23 years. Uh, started off in the litigation world, so I would I would defend securities companies like JP Morgan and Merrill Lynch and those guys, big guys, but it was more on the litigation side. So I would literally be doing courts. I'd be attending courts and arbitrations and depositions and all that kind of fun stuff, appellate work, kind of that fun stuff. And then, okay. uh, I don't know, about 15 years ago, 17 years ago, I left the practice and uh, became general counsel for a group called the Real Estate Guys, who have a pretty large podcast and was their general counsel, meaning I was you know in charge of all their legal and, and, and relationships with outside counsel. Did that for a little bit and then started my own firm in 2007. You know, pretty much did anything that put food on the table. That's usually what you do when you start a new law firm. Uh, but yeah. then kind of narrowed it down to two disciplines. One was asset protection, which I think is a topic that a lot of passive investors should be interested in, whether they are or not. I don't know, but it's something that I think every single individual, let alone certainly a passive investor, should be aware of. And then securities was the other part of my practice. And then I think eight years ago, I just decided to go all in on syndication. So right now, all of my clients are real estate syndicators who are raising capital to go buy real estate, whether that's multifamily or self-storage or mobile home parks or you know whatever it is. Uh, they, they come to us to make sure, to be honest with you, to make sure that not only are they protected, meaning they're complying fully with all the securities laws, but also that the passive investors are protected too. I mean, that's the whole point of all those documentations. Hopefully, you know, past investors read them, but the whole idea behind this PPM, this private placement memorandum is to disclose all the risks, right? There's obviously risks that are involved on a particular deal, you know, sponsors, loan products, all that stuff that comes together in a syndication, there's risks. And my job is to make sure that we disclose all those risks to the passive investors so that they can make an intelligent decision as to whether this is a good investment or not for them. So if we don't give them all the information, then they, they, it makes it harder for them to make an intelligent decision. We just want to make sure, hey, here's all the info. You know, This is why we think it's a good deal. You then make your own decision as to whether it's good. And as long as we disclose everything, it's always going to be a good time. 
Okay. Awesome. Thank you for kind of walking us through that. Really, one, being associated with Real Estate Radio, guys, that was actually the first podcast that I started listening to in the space, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. So um, spent a lot of windshield time listening to those guys. And um, then moving into the pace with asset protection and syndications and that you know, I hate to say it, but you're the guy I get to blame for those 100-page PPMs that I get to sift <laughs> through and, and know and love. Yeah. Um, but I like that you bring up the fact that this is really put in place to protect not only the operators, but also the passive investors. Yeah. So yeah. with our audience being primarily passive investors, can you talk about some of the things that are in that PPM that are actually dedicated towards protecting the passive investor versus the opposite side? Yeah, I mean, the, look, the, there's really two, there's a lot of documents that I call sort of the offering documents. And so two of them are the PPM, the private place memorandum. And then the second one is the operating agreement, the actual LLC operating agreement. The PPM yep. is primarily a risk disclosing document, meaning this is the document where I, where I lay out all the ways your investment can go wrong, all the potential conflicts of interest that I, I may have as a sponsor, which by the way, it happens a lot. I mean, sponsors may have multiple. Mm-hmm. You know, deals in the same market. They may be sometimes even competing. You know, they may they may want to sell a property when you know investors may want to keep it. I mean, there's a lot of conflicts. Not necessarily not, not necessarily a bad one, but it just investors need to know and be aware of those conflicts. But the risk disclosures, if there's anything that's you know any skeletons in the closet, for example, mm-hmm. so disclosures. So for example, if your sponsor, you know, has had some kind of let I me mean, let's let's go on the extreme. If if, if a sponsor has had it's a criminal background, for example, and has you know been convicted of fraud, right in the past, well, as the passive investors, you're entitled to know that, and so that's going to be found in the documentation. If they filed for bankruptcy back in the day, if they went through a terrible 2008 and lost all, I mean, all that information, all those disclosures need to be put in that documentation. That's the reason, to be honest with you, that's the reason the PPM exists. I mean the the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, has put these laws into place to protect the sort of co- consumer protection law in the sense that they're trying to protect the passive investor, especially if you're a non-accredited investor. And that's another kind of important thing I, I should pivot to just briefly. But yeah. the level of disclosures that are required to give non-accredited investors is much higher than the level of disclosures you're required to give accredited. Now, in my world, we do the work anyway, so we generally provide the same documentation. We, we do the, the hardcore do- disclosure document, but we, we, we give it both to the non-accredited and the accredited. But, uh, you know, but, but that's really what it's meant to be, is, is to protect non-accredited investors who are investors who have less than a million dollars in net worth, right, excluding their primary residence, or basically earn $200,000 a year or, or have earned $200,000 a year the two, last yeah. year, two prior years with a reasonable expectation of earning that this year. That's why they're there. That's why these laws were passed. And, and, and it's interesting to note that these laws are kind of old. <laughs> you know, th- these are sure. from the Securities Act of 1933. And if you know anything about the, the, the history, 1933 is right after sort of the, the panic of 1929. It's like the last huge stock market collapse and everything. So these laws were passed in order to protect, uh, protect those investors, just like the most recent laws passed at the end of 2008. Uh, we had this Jobs yeah. Act and all this stuff. So usually some catastrophe happens, then a bunch of laws get passed to further protect, you know, investors or customers and, and the securities laws are, are no different. Okay. Well, and let's dig into that a little bit if we can. Can you, um, it, it sounds like, is your organization or your group, are they actually doing some type of background check or are they just simply collecting or going to the GP and asking them for 
these disclosure items and yep. some type of due diligence process there? Or what is that? Yeah, like? we, we take the, the information provided by the sponsors. Uh, now, what the sponsors need to be doing is twofold. One is letting us know if, because we ask those questions, right? We have questionnaires to our sponsors. Hey, have you ever been convicted you know, of, a, of some kind of securities violation? Have you ever filed for bankruptcy? Do you have anything else we should be aware of? So we, we're in constant communication with them. But what's interesting is if there's multiple sponsors, you've got an obligation. Each sponsor has an obligation to double check each other because if one of those sponsors tend, ends up being sort of a bad actor or somebody has a thing and they don't disclose it to the other sponsors and therefore it doesn't get disclosed to me, that could also be an issue. So uh, there's all these bad act, bad act laws and that kind of prevent, um, because if you've been convicted of securities laws, securities violations in the past, there's a good chance that either you're barred from raising money today, or at the very least, if it happens way back before the statute happened, that you would have to uh, disclose it in your documentation. Got it. Got it. And obviously, that's, that's probably the fastest way in the world to kill a deal, I would imagine, if you have something like that on your record, I would imagine. Yeah, right? that, that's, that's exactly right. So if somebody's filed for bankruptcy or any other financial issues or sort of, again, security, and, and look, securities violations are not that hard to find. A lot of this stuff isn't that hard to find. I mean, if I'm a passive sure. investor, one of the, I mean, one of the main things you want to do as a passive investor is, is your due diligence on the sponsors. And so when you start Googling, just even Googling, uh, you know, the names of the sponsors and you dig a little deeper than page one and two, eventually you're going to find if there's something out there, you, you should just with a Google search, you're going to find something. And then other people sure. take it to the next level and hire people. I mean, there's other professional services, some, some more paid searches that you can do that okay. I mean, there aren't that complicated. In fact, I would recommend that. I mean, you can do a, I don't know what it costs, but it's not prohibitively expensive. It might be a couple hundred dollars if that where you can literally do a whole search, a criminal and civil search, so you can find out if the individual has ever been a part of a civil lawsuit, meaning that somebody just sued him for damages or, or some kind of a criminal violation, um, which would be sort of a securities violation would, would definitely pop up there. Okay, okay, yeah, really, really great advice. And not, yeah. um, not something I've added to my due diligence process with my operators yet, but it sounds like that it would be a fairly easy thing to do and not yeah. too, too mm -hmm. uh, intensive from a monetary standpoint. Yep. So yep. interesting. Now we had talked a little bit about, um, you know, vetting operators with backgrounds. I'm, I'm curious, I know you've done a lot of work with, um, with your audience talking about best ways to vet operators. Do you have a couple of go-to questions that you like to, to go to immediately just to vet the folks that you're working with or good suggestions for our passive investors to do? You know, one of the, you know, when I, when I look, I'm a passive investor myself, right? I mean, I run a yeah. successful law practice, but you know, I want passive income like everybody else, right? So I'm trying to turn my sure. active income into passive income. One of the first things I'm always interested in is finding out what's the level of experience of the sponsor in that particular asset class. Uh, mm -hmm. So for example, you know, the person who's raising the capital may have an extensive background in multifamily, maybe one of the top multifamily you know, operators in the country, but if the particular investment is a mobile home park, that's a different skill set. So I want to make sure that at least there's somebody on that team that is experienced in the mobile home park space. It doesn't have to be the main person or the person I have the relationship, but somebody on that team, even if they're running in the background, just knows, you know, mobile home parks inside out, back to front or self-storage or RV parks or whatever it is. And that's just a, a function of a, you know, a well, you know, a well, uh, you know, a well oiled machine on the sponsorship group that, you know, if they're going to venture out into a new market, into a new asset class that they're not fam that familiar with, just bring somebody in the team who is same thing with yeah. the market. You know, they may really be great 
in a particular marketplace. Maybe they've been investing in Dallas, Texas, or that area for the for the longest time, and now they're venturing out to Florida or Naples or whatever one of these kind of emerging markets. Well, you know, how much experience do you have in that particular marketplace, or, or you know, wh why are you picking the marketplace? Uh, so that that's kind of a the big thing. But the due diligence on the sponsors is is basically. The, the vast majority of the work that I do and what, that any passive investor I think should be doing, because obviously once you write that check, you don't get to do anything. Like you truly are right. passive. You're not going to get any voting rights. You're not going to get any say in the, in the company. You'll, you'll be mm -hmm. provided reports, but you're not going to have any influence in the thing. Your main influence happens prior to that, which is one of the reasons why so many passive investors who are like me that are con constantly investing like to go back to the same sponsors because presumably they're doing a good job because you know they're they're giving yeah. you they're they're executing on their business plan, but more importantly, I don't have to go do through the due, due diligence again. Like I've already done my due diligence on sponsor. I've met them. I know them. I like them. I you know trust them. All that stuff. You know, if I go with another group, then I gotta you know I gotta start from scratch and do my vetting process. So so if you can do a good job for your past investors, that's one of the reasons they tend to come back over and over again. Yeah, I love that. that it, always the number one question we ask is what What have you done in the past? How many full cycle deals? How many total deals? What have those looked like? And then we always go yeah. communication as well. I want to know how yep. they're going to communicate to me yep. too. So, and have they gone so through down cycle? By, by the way, who, you know, full cycle is important, obviously, because you know anybody can buy a property. And the question really is, can they execute and, and then exit? But like, hey, where yeah. were you in two thousand and eight, two thousand seven? Were you buying whatever asset class you were, and how did you survive that downturn? Because you know, there's an argument to be made that if you started buying stuff in 2011, 2012 at the absolute bottom, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to sort of rocket science to, to, to get that lift. Right. And so now that things are yep. starting to slow down a little bit and some of those cap rates are going higher, then we'll see who's uh, who's really performing and who's just been bailed out by by compressing cap rates. Yep. We'll see who's who's swimming naked when the tide goes that's out. Right, that's right? right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm interested being affiliated for a handful of years with the real estate radio guys. Um, I would, you've, you've been sitting on the sidelines and, and involved as well in this space. There's a new, there's a new um, trend that's going on with the change in the, the economy and the market. And I know we're not economists or anything, but do you have any insight or thoughts or where you see this space going in the next two, three, five years? Just in general, um, you know, I've been, you know, one of the things that I don't want to go completely off topic, but one of the things I, you know, as, again, we probably do, I know we do a couple hundred of these every year, right? So I see all kinds yeah. of, whether it's multifamily and different asset classes, different structures. But one of the things we've noticed now for the last probably 12 to 18 months is people really interested in this idea of tokenizing their syndications and putting it on blockchain and taking advantage of all the pros. And that's a, mm -hmm. in fact, I did do a whole show on it, so I don't want to take too much mm -hmm. time on that, but, but that's something I'm actually excited about. And I do believe that in the next probably five years, my call has been in the next five years, I believe that the majority of syndications will be tokenized and tokenization is simply a digital representation of the, of the LLC. Look, as a passive investor, you own 2% of the LLC, right? Well, those 2% are also going to be represented in a digital form in the form of a token that's going to basically represent that LLC unit, and then it's going to be on blockchain. But that opens up a whole fascinating world of things that you can do you know, with that that you, you theoretically can do now, but it just takes so much time and so many third parties and there's no, no trust. You need escrow accounts. Mm -hmm. It takes forever. There's a lot of cool things that are coming down the pipeline, and I do think it's going to affect the syndication uh, industry fairly significantly. So, and I've not spent a lot of time in this, but my general understanding is that it it makes this 
um, this asset that you own as an LP investor, something that's transferable potentially outside of the normal constraints of the of the GP agreement or the uh, PBM, uh, I guess? No, look, it's no, nothing new, right? So you're still okay. going to be subjected to the same, you know, right now there's usually a one-year hold period. So that's always going to, you know, if you're doing a, a, a 506B or a 506C, there's a one-year hold period. So that's going to stay the same. But what it's, all it's going to do is, is facilitate those transactions because right now you could, and there are a few, you could take your 5% interest in the LLC, go to some website that's you know buying and selling and actually sell those to a secondary market. Now there are some in the operating agreement, there are you know provisions there that require you to first you know tell the, the sponsor, offer the sponsor sort of a right of first refusal because the sponsor may want to keep track of you know who's in the deal. Mm -hmm. But presuming, assuming they don't buy that 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 your LLC piece from it, your LP interest, you can then go to the secondary market. The problem is there isn't one right now because it's just it's mm -hmm. it, it's not there. And it just imagine the the time and the expense it would take for somebody to vet the deal and make sure that you actually own the mm -hmm. shares of the LP and what the operating agreement says. And hey, you're telling me that you're getting a twelve percent cash on cash because it's been three years since. You know, you got to do all your due diligence. Once everything's on blockchain and is verifiable, you could not only have all that information in an instant moment, but there are companies out there that are actually giving you real time valuations on those properties because they have access to the, you know, the rent, the rents that are coming in and you know, all that NOI. They know what the cap rates are. They can give you a valuation instantly, which you're going to need for trading, just like on the stock market. You know exactly what Apple shares are mm -hmm. right now and what they're going to be in two minutes. So that's kind of the stuff that I think is coming down the pipeline. Again, this has nothing to do with crypto, nothing to do with any of that yeah. stuff. It's not Bitcoin. These are actually just yeah. security tokens, which are just digital representations of the underlying asset. So it's really just, it is the asset itself. Interesting. Yeah, it's. I, I definitely need to spend some more time there. I know it is coming. Um, I suspect my knowledge in that area will increase as it's... Uh, more of a necessary for me yeah. to be involved in that space in the business, but super, I'll, I'll super interesting. For, I'll do a plug for my buddy, Ken McElroy. So Ken McElroy is one of the rich dad advisor from rich dad, poor dad, yeah. Robert Kiyosaki. He's got a YouTube channel, which is amazing. I'm one of his legal advisors there. And I just did, I think my last video, I did a, uh, is it a two-parter or no, it was just the one-parter on sort of the future of real estate and the tokenization. And I've gotten some good feedback on that video. So that's something, if you're interested, I would suggest you check out. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And actually, to the listeners, we'll we'll include all of Mauricio's um, social and YouTube channel. Um, there's just a tremendous amount of information out there, like years and years of content um, going years back. Uh, yeah, I, started, so I think I started in 2000. It's funny, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I started the YouTube channel, I think, in 2018 or something. It's only been like four years. But right before, yeah. so basically right before COVID hit, and, uh, and then when COVID hit, you, you know, cause I, I just was tired of traveling and, you know, I said, Hey, why don't I just do this digitally? And maybe over time I can just reduce sure. my travel. COVID hits, everybody's forced to go online. You would think I would have an advantage because I started already. And then I disappeared. I literally disappeared from YouTube, did very <laughs> few videos for that whole COVID period. I mean, I did podcasts and webinars, yeah. but it's only been like the last year. In fact, I think about almost a year now, November of last year is when I really, put my, my face down again and, and started a podcast and now trying to put out about four or five videos at YouTube every week and just trying to put some more content out there. It's fantastic. Yeah. And you do, you do a great session during, uh, it's like, I believe it's five o'clock my time where you get on live as well with uh, Q and a, so you can get access to Mauricio real time, ask real questions 
and get really involved with uh, the material that he's put out there. It's just a ton of value. So thank you. Thank yeah, you so and, much and for it, that. And it's geared to, more um, towards syndicators, but I am going to start putting out some more content that I think will be very relevant to past investors. For example, the asset protection stuff, pretending everything, estate planning, you know, all those kind of peripherals, real estate attorneys, if you're buying real estate yourself. So all these other peripheral, I'm going to start putting some content uh, beyond those other, those other disciplines. Okay. And, and, you know, that's really a good transition actually for us as well, because I know we wanted to talk a little bit about this, but a question I literally had from an investor earlier today, as he said, um, should I be investing as an LP in my own personal name or should I be investing as an LC, LLC? So I'm wondering, does that tie into this asset protection piece as well? I assume it does. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, yeah, it, it ties in very Nicely. I mean, you generally don't want to have, you don't want to own anything in your personal name. Now in a syndication, you don't really own the asset in your personal name because the asset's already in an LLC, right? So you're already going to be owning an LLC as opposed to the asset. So that's a good step. The challenge will just be what state is that LLC set in? Because if, if it's a good state, like a Texas, for example, uh, or even Florida, when a lot of people are buying properties there, then you probably have sufficient asset protection to cover you. But God forbid you're in California or in Georgia, if you're buying stuff in Atlanta, even though you own LLCs, if there's a judgment against you, if you get into a car accident or some other dispute and you owe somebody a million bucks, they're going to be able to have a judge transfer the interest, you know, your 2% that you own over here, they're just going to transfer it flat out to, uh, to, to, to the creditor. And so you, so you do want to be aware of it. My general rule is that I think everybody should have their own sort of and investing entity, I call it a holding company, so that what you own, no matter what, is going to be that holding company, not necessarily an LP interest in an LLC or in property. You, you should have a, you know, you should have an entity that's yours, and that should be set up in a really good asset protection state, like in Nevada or a Wyoming or a Delaware. And then okay. all your invest, all your passive investments, I I would make them through that entity. And and there's some anonymity benefits to this hundred percent at least one or two of the states that you mentioned i believe right yeah well uh, the one that i love for anonymity is what one of the reasons wyoming is so popular number one n- most people use nevada so but so wyoming's cheaper it's easy to use i mean you can literally set up a wyoming llc and like, if you told me to do it now and your life depended on it, i could probably have it done by the time this podcast is over uh okay. so uh it's really but the anonymity in wyoming is second to none because even the state of wyoming doesn't know who you are um, so, um, if, if somebody walked into the secretary of state in Wyoming and said, Hey, this LLC, who owns it? They, they wouldn't know. It's not like they wouldn't be able to tell you. They literally yeah. would not know. Now the registered agent yeah. who is, is something you required, they have that. So if the state really had to get it, they could find it. Mm-hmm. But for regular people looking to see who owns this LLC, uh, it provides a nice level of anonymity. Uh, so that's another reason we like, uh, Wyoming. Now, again, anonymity and privacy is important. It's certainly important to me. That's not, not, we're not relying on that secrecy or privacy for the asset protection, but it certainly helps when those plaintiff's lawyers are doing asset searches to find out if the, if the person has any assets and they can't find anything. It certainly helps to dissuade them from really taking on a case or, or not settling yep. for whatever insurance you have. Yep. So it's really one of those, it's similar to like if everybody on the block has a sign out front that says that they're protected by security and one doesn't. The four that are protected are, you know, the the, guy, the bad guy's going to pass the four and go to the that's family. Right. That's right. Because so, the first thing, I mean, okay. I worked actually, I worked for a plaintiff's lawyer for right after I graduated college. The first thing a plaintiff's lawyer, no matter how great your case is, what they're going to do is they're going to do an asset search because they work on contingency. And that means they don't get paid okay. 
unless you get paid, right? So it doesn't matter. They have the greatest case in the world. It could be a rear ender and the broken back and like just a perfect case. But think about it. An attorney is not going to want to spend three years of their life fighting for a judgment, getting the judgment. So they won, but that's only part one. Part two is you've got to collect. And if they don't know if there's money out there to collect, they're not going to want to go spend three years of their life, you know, trying to pursue it. And they're much happier to, to settle for whatever insurance limits you have. Great. And, and I'm, I'm curious, do, do trust play a role in this discussion as well? Or is that something separate from the asset yeah, protection? It depends on the trust. So when most people say trust, they're thinking of a living trust and that's an estate yep. planning. That's purely uh, a mechanism to avoid probate. So when you die, you don't want to go through probate because it takes six to eight months, if not longer, there's fee, you know, attorney fees and it's all public. Right. So if you okay. die without a without a trust, like, uh, you know, Robin Williams, I remember it's where the last and there's probably others since then. But Robin Williams died without a trust. You'd think you think people have the means to do it. And so that's yeah. all public. Everybody knows what he owns and who gets what. And, you know, you've got to pay the attorneys because that's court appointed. And the whole yeah. process takes six to eight months with a trust. It just happens instantaneously. It's all private. So that's why you want to have a trust. It's not for asset protection because a trust actually has zero asset protection value it has no asset protection value whatsoever, unless you okay. get what we call sort of an asset protection trust, which is an irrevocable trust, meaning once you set up the trust, there's no changing it. There's no, you know, you can't change the beneficiaries or the settlers, which is not what you would be doing for, for estate planning. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Really, really good questions. Thanks for walking through a lot yeah, of, that of course. Stuff. A lot of it, a lot of it can be kind of intimidating. I think that's why it's important to have folks like you um, available and people investing dollars in their investment journey to partner up with folks like you as well to make sure they're protected and have all of the information that they need to, to make sure they don't run into some of these troubles. So I, I'm curious, we're, we're kind of coming to the, the bottom of the, the hour here. Um, is there anything that I missed that you would like to share with the passive investing community that you think would bring some value to them? Uh... It's kind of a general question, but yeah. You know, I know that you've got a nice resource. I put, yeah, a lot of people actually been putting these things, but there's just all those questions as a passive investor that you should be asking a sponsor. And the due diligence question was just one of those 10. There's so many others. For example, we just talked about estate planning. Like like you should probably find out from the sponsor, well, what what happens if you die? Like what's Mm -hmm. the, what's the succession plan? Because you're the one with all the experience. You're the one that crushes it in multifamily or whatever asset class you're in. Uh, what happens if you die? Is it going to be your spouse, your your 19-year-old kid who's going to take over? Like, what's the succession plan, right? And so that's another question that you should be asking. Um, You know, are your values aligned with your sponsor? You know, you you may be a cash flow investor and maybe you're a retiree and you want that cash flow and the sponsor has a, you know, a ground of development that's not going to pay off for the next 18 months, right? So there's there's about 10 or more questions. And I know you've got a great resource. I would highly encourage listeners to grab that. And um, and that be be well prepared to ask those questions prior to making any you know any investment. Very good, very good. Thank you. We'll we'll certainly include that in the show notes. Uh, it's the top ten questions to ask a potential partner or syndicator before you invest with them. So, um, well, thank you so much. You've brought a, a ton of value here. Uh, really appreciate the time that you've spent with us. I know you're extremely busy, so thank you. I do have, if if we've got a few moments, I have just a few quick questions yeah. I'd love to ask to finish this thing up. So um, I'm curious, is there, uh, from a passive investing standpoint, is there a specific book that you would suggest our uh, listeners 
go out and buy and 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 read and become whole with to make sure that they're learning everything they can about the space. Uh, well, I've got two books behind me, so I'll probably recommend those. One is the little purple book, right? The Rich Dad Poor Dad, which is more a mental, you know, context and not necessarily specific stuff. But if you, have, I can't imagine there's that many people who have not read Rich Dad Poor Dad. But if you're one of them, sure, I would highly recommend doing it. And then the Real Estate Guys put out the Equity Happens. Uh, a long, long time ago. That's uh, it's, it's out of print. It's hard to find. I sometimes give it away since it's, I've seen it resold for like 500 bucks on, on, on eBay. But uh, that's another great, yeah. you know, if you're a passive investor and you're just starting out, uh, just get, get familiar with real estate and, and some of the terms. Those are probably the two books I would recommend. Fantastic. And it, any, um, any specific podcasts that you think are great resources? Um, you know, if, a, if you're a, I'm going to give you my favorite current one, and it's got really nothing necessarily to do with mm -hmm. real estate, but especially in today's environment, getting a handle on sort of macroeconomics and getting an idea of, you know, what's going on in the world, because I think that's going to affect a lot, whether it's real estate or whatever, whatever asset class you're investing in as a passive investor. So there's a great guy by the sure. name of George Gammon, who's kind of broken out in the scene for the last probably 12 to 18 months. He's got a great podcast called The Rebel Capitalist and a great YouTube yeah. channel as well. And if you're interested in, in learning about, you know, where are interest rates going? What's the Fed going to do? What's going to happen with mortgage rates? You know, is, is real estate going up? Is it going down? Or why you should, all that kind of stuff. That's a great podcast to listen to, and I would highly recommend it. I, I would agree. It is it is packed with information, and uh, he certainly goes over my head at times, but uh, I'm striving yeah. to make it through yeah. a full podcast and understand everything he's talking about. So hopefully, yeah. Yeah. hopefully and, in the coming years, that'll happen. Yeah. And of course, the Real Estate Guys radio show, I mean, that's still a, a, a staple, right, in any, in any collection of podcasts. I know that's where you started. That's really how I started. That's, that's how I... You know, I found them actually through Kiyosaki. I heard a drop-in, radio drop-in, met those guys. And so the Real Estate Guys radio show is another great resource as well. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Well, yeah. um, we, as I mentioned, we will definitely include all your social handles, the best way to contact you, your website, and your YouTube page in the show notes. Um, it's really been a pleasure having you on the, on the show. I really appreciate it, Mauricio. Thanks so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me, Randy. I had a, had a lot of fun. Thank you. Outstanding. And to our listeners, as always, we, we finish with just continue to educate yourself, inspire yourself and gain, do the work and the homework that you need to do to gain the confidence in this space and make that first passive investment. Cause at, once you do, we're very confident that you'll continue to do so time and time again. So thanks so much for being with us here today. Thank you. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the gentle art of crushing it. It was an amazing episode. We know we sure learned a lot, and we hope you did as well. We want to take a second and thank you so much for viewing or listening to this episode. And please just know that we only ask for one favor, and that is to make this life magnificent. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.